0: The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money show. We're here every second and fourth Tuesday of each month on WWS. 10 a.m. I'm here with a couple of regular guests, one of them in the studio, uh, and one of them outside the studio. Of course, outside the studio is Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, do I have you correctly? Can you hear me?
0: I can hear you. fine. Good.
1: Okay. Just want to make sure you were there. So I have Dr. Fred Gertz right. on the phone, and I have certified financial planner professional, Ryan Repko, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. He's our plus one. I don't know why Paul, who prepares this, <laughs> continues to call you the plus one of the family. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at WDWS. And today, since it's Halloween this weekend, we'll be taking talking about the scary things about retirement. Feel free to call in and tell us what scares you about retirement. We have a pretty lengthy survey from Trans America. I thought in some ways it was enlightening and some things were counterintuitive to me. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, Here we have a countdown one week from today. Well, I don't know if we'll know one week from today who the president is. I suppose we might or might not. Um, But I don't think I've seen people or some people as concerned about The outcome of this election. I mean, every four years, of course, there's pretty strong opinions about it, but it seems to be heightened. Um, Dr. Fred, what's your your take on all this concern that if so-and-so wins, we're going to be a socialist country, and by 2 p.m. the next day, and the markets are going to collapse, the economy is going to collapse. I know that seems like hyperbole, but I, I talk to an awful lot of people that basically, in the back of their mind, that's how they see this thing playing out.
0: Well, I can understand that. This is one of the most, uh, I guess, unusual elections uh, in, in, in my memory. And typically, the uh, the story is that uh, once people, uh, once the candidates win the uh, primary, then they kind of move to the middle to try to attract more voters. In this case, uh, it doesn't seem to be the uh, situation uh uh, President Trump seems to be trying to protect his base more than expand his base. and The Democrats obviously are, uh, have, a, have a very significant uh, wing associated with AOC and uh, Bernie Sanders and things, uh, people like that. So it does seem to be a kind of uh, uh, extreme choices. And again, back in 1968, George Wallace said it wasn't a dime worth the difference between the two parties. And now there does seem to be but the 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 comforting thing is that the financial market seems to be taking this in stride that the uh, the averages have been uh high by by standards of this year and then been relatively steady aside from from yesterday. so there doesn't seem to be a lot of concern among the the financial people so that's kind of comforting in a way and the underlying kind of comfort is that so uh, as we've talked many times uh The economy has a life of its own, and it's not going to change dramatically. Now, again, over a period of years, if you move one direction or another, it might have some impacts, but I don't think there's going to be an immediate effect one way or another.
1: Okay, Fred, we have a call. Uh, I think it says the Joe, but I think we're just going to say it's Joe online, too. I think has a question about the fair tax, or some people would say the not-so-fair tax. Joe, are you with us? Yeah, that's that's what
0: it is—the fair tax. I just wanted to find out one one place they say that they're going to tax retirement, and I just wanted to know what the truth is, or what do you know about it?
1: Well, Fred, I've asked you this a number of times, and you know, I've it's always been my view that they will the minute they can, but you have the you have a completely different view than I do.
0: Right. What well, do the, mean? the fair tax. Actually, let me back off a little bit. It's kind of complicated because there's a ballot, a question on the ballot, which is a, a revising a constitutional amendment to permit uh, the graduated income tax rates, which are now prohibited. But in addition to that, there's also a, a bill that's been a pa- passed and signed by the governor that's waiting to go into effect. So if the fair tax is approved, then January will have a, a higher tax rate, but will only apply to relatively high-income individuals. So the argument on the side of the uh, the Prisker people is that this is a uh, tax cut or no increase for 97% of the people, and for 3%, it will be. Uh, the other side is arguing that it opens up the door to all kinds of things. And so one of the arguments is it opens up the door to uh, the taxation of retirement income. And the fact is, the door is already open. Uh, there's no yeah. I against taxing retirement income right now, so they could do it now, they could do it in the future, but but the point is that, uh, using the Social Security analogy, it's the third rail of of Illinois politics because both sides are saying they won't tax retirement income. They're very much afraid of that, so there's no legal prohibition against that, but there's a very strong political uh, momentum that would make it very difficult for any any one party or any, any group to... Move to taxing income. So right now I think that it's possible, but it's not, not very likely to happen.
1: I got one more thing for you. Yes, sir.
0: I know the lottery is supposed to go for, for schools and all that, but they're always taxing for schools. So that lottery, lottery fund never even goes to schools or but probably very little does.
1: Fred, what's your what's your take on that?
0: Again, this is kind of a sleight of hand that goes back several decades. Uh, the, the, the bottom line here is that lottery revenue is very small compared to the amount of uh, money going to education. So, if there's a half a billion dollars uh, lottery income, and, and the state spends. Uh, 10 times that much for education. They can say that every dollar of the lottery goes there, but it doesn't, and it, but it's all just a kind of accounting trick. So uh, that was yeah. something that was used to approve the uh, the lottery. Now, there's a similar thing now that, with the, uh, the so-called fair tax, if it goes into effect, might raise uh, two or $3 billion. They say, well, that could solve, we could have property tax cuts, we could have more money for education, we could have uh, better pension funding, uh, improve our uh, our uh, uh, health and welfare kind of services, all of those things. Well, the problem is that those uh, all those things together would amount to probably five or ten times the amount of money that would be raised by the the so-called fair tax. So again, it's a similar kind of thing. It would raise money, but it's far short of dealing with all the kinds of things they're they're talking about that it would uh, address. Okay. Right. well, thank you.
1: All right, Joe. Thanks for the call. I think that's on a lot of people's minds. And uh, I think anybody that thinks they're going to get a tax decrease somehow in the state of Illinois, uh, I don't know, Fred. You would probably have a different view it, than I do. But it but, would be
0: it would be microscopic if they <laughs> that one. The, the rate cuts are like uh, a tenth of a percent or something yeah. like that or sort of, uh, so. It would be if there is a tax cut, it would be uh, maybe they'd have to go out to dinner once a year.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I look at state and local taxes, and I always wonder, Fred, how much should we be concerned? What suppose this passes, we're only going to tax that few percent of people, the high, the fat cats. Um, isn't this? Isn't there, It's always a classic case that people they'll put these tax increases in place, and they'll do the math, and they think this is how much they're going to raise, but they always leave out the fact that money goes where it's treated best. I had, uh, I've had Jimmy John Leoto on my show the last couple of Paul Rudy's 52 minutes. Um, and, you know, he was just, taught, I asked him why he moved to Florida and he didn't directly say, say it, but it, uh, the undertones was, but he did say this, money goes where it's treated best. Um, is, right. isn't there a risk we push, push out a certain number of high income people from the tax base in Illinois?
0: sure especially uh nowadays because uh, most people's people in that category are not uh, people that own a factory or something of that sort most of the assets are very mobile uh, and you can operate one place almost as well as another place with that in the old days you could pick up and move a factory but it's pretty easy to move some computers to Florida or Texas or someplace like that. So there is always that fear. The other problem is that uh, I don't think most people recognize the uh, the magnitude of this because if you go up, uh, you would think, well, it's only going up from a little bit less than four to somewhere above seven. But the fact is that you add to that the fact that for most high income people, uh, state and local taxes are no longer deductible because of the ten. There's a uh, a ten thousand dollar cap. So you're basically going from a after-tax situation, of about 3% up to about 7% in a period of a year or two. So that's not going to escape the notice of, uh, of a lot of taxpayers. The second thing is that, obviously, people that have uh, billions of dollars, uh, much of that uh, is associated with capital gains, and Illinois uh, taxes capital gains if they're at the uh, ordinary rate, unlike the, the federal government. So those can make a difference. Not, not, I'm not suggesting everyone's going to pick up and move, but it's certainly a, a factor that's going to eat into the extra tax revenue that's expected.
1: Yeah. I always worry about the vicious death spiral, but I think for states, you've convinced me, Fred, it, the vicious death spiral doesn't play out over a period of a few years. It, right. it m- might take m- but, but many a story, decades.
0: There's you what you'd like to tax is not always what you can tax. So, again, that's a problem at, at the federal level as well, that uh, uh, you have lots of super high-income people, but they also have their ways and means in terms of tax avoidance. So, just because you'd like to tax someone doesn't mean it's necessarily easy to do that.
1: And as far as the economy, I mean, we've had a, a very strong rebound. We still have a long way to go, and I expect, personally, I think it'll take several years before we get back to where we were if policies stay the same. Um, anecdotally it just seems like there's this second wave of businesses going out of business we've heard about a number of them recently just this week this year for various reasons but a lot of them it's related to just the downturn in the economy Um, should we be afraid of a significant kind of second shoe to drop like businesses have made it so far with the PPP money and they're trying to hang on but maybe by the end of the year if not, if there's no more stimulus, we're going to get this other wave of small businesses failing.
0: Well, I think that's probably true. I don't know how, how big the wave is, and, and whether it's just small businesses or all kinds of businesses. Small businesses have their problems. but uh, Non-small businesses do as well. So, uh, again, it, it's the problem of uh, what do you do to help in, in the short run to try to keep – Everything afloat, and, and make sure people have incomes, businesses have uh, uh, the ability to stay in operation. But after a period of time, that the world really has changed. If it's going to be a lot different uh, uh, after you know March of 2000, there's some businesses that simply can't survive in that environment. So it's a sad situation, but it does make a lot of sense to continue those businesses by some sort of subsidy over a period of years if they're not going to be viable in the long run. So it's kind of a a fact of life it's a sad fact of life but at some point uh changes have to be made and in a system like ours one uh, of the changes uh, that happens is some some firms go away and other firms come in or, or become larger so that's a, probably a fact of life
1: it's been something that's been going on for a couple hundred years just for different reasons each time and uh, i always try to remind people that okay you're going to see a lot of restaurants you've already seen a lot of them close probably many more to come but it doesn't mean the end of the restaurant business it means that now people will go in and say hey you know what i think i could use that location maybe they get it for a lease that's half of what it was and they've, all this equipment's already there and they're buying them for pennies and the dollars and they can go in with a cost structure now that mathematically the the restaurant business works and we get this right. whole new wave of uh... you know innovation
0: again uh, it's always uh tricky to predict the future but i i would think that we'll see movies back in in uh some way uh in the not too distant future even though the uh the firm was bankrupt before the uh covid crisis and out um basically liquidation and, and the uh theater is sitting there un- occupied, and occupied the amount they paid for it is much more than the value now but again uh resources have a way of flowing it in the right direction. So I suspect someone will uh, buy the theater at a, a huge discount and then will start having movies again. Again, yeah. that's sad for the people invested in it uh, in the first place, but it's also uh, a kind of a fact of life. The other thing is I think that the, uh, the uh, recession uh, kind of uh, made people uh, – think clearly about the situation. So firms that were just hanging on or just almost on the brink of uh, of going out of business probably think, thought that was the last straw and might as well uh, you know, uh, call it in at that point. So I think that, that it precipitated a lot of the actions that may have been uh, likely to occur in the future uh, but without the recession.
2: Yeah. Okay. And Dr. Fred, you had made a comment many shows ago talking about companies that were receiving these PPP loans and you were, you know, of course, afraid that you know how many of these companies that are receiving these loans are kind of zombie companies. They're already on their their last straw, and yet here they are being propped up um, by these government initiatives. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it's the it's the thought that well, at any given time, any any business might be failing or or not having a good run, and then out of nowhere, the COVID event hits, and it it maybe progresses their timeline further, and it just shows all right. these companies at one time going out. That maybe it would have happened eventually anyway. It's it's obviously unfortunate and it's not good for your community, especially in a smaller community. Um, but it's kind of pushing the timeline forward,
0: right? And and the the original uh, aid package uh, was not kind of like a bloody instrument. <clears throat> it, it tended to help all kinds of groups without a lot of discretion about uh, is it worth it or is it not. So that wasn't a bad idea to, in, in in the midst of a really unprecedented kind of crisis to step in and and provide aid was uh, a reasonable thing to do. But again, if you think about the airlines, the airlines aren't going to disappear, but do we want to support the uh, airlines as they were constituted back in uh, January of 2000, when they probably have twice the capacity uh, that they actually need? Do we want to maintain that for 10 or 20 years? The answer probably is no. So at some point, the airlines are not going to go out of business, but they have to make some hard decisions about cutting back. And that's, again, it's sad that that's the way the the world works.
1: And it's fair to say, Fred, that, you know, the story of our country is we have these setbacks, we have these, um, you know, economic downturns, but we always revert to the permanent uptrend. That's somewhere around right. 2 to 3% growth per year. Uh, and, and I think that's the part that always... I think the only thing that keeps me sane as an investment advisor and someone who's responsible for hundreds of families' lives is that that permanent uptrend, one way or another, always reasserts itself. We just don't know when and to what extent. And
0: it doesn't mean it doesn't. Change change is painful. If you go back to the uh, turn of the uh, 20th century, uh, there there were uh, millions and millions of, of horses around. And, uh, all of a sudden cars came along and the horses, uh, disappeared and the farmers and the people that provided hay and the wagons and so on. And again, that was a very painful, uh, transition for them. But again, in the long run, that, that those things happen and you have to, have to deal with them. And again, we may want to provide transitional aid, but you can't, uh, it would be silly now to have the government, uh, subsidizing, uh, 20 million horses every year that, that, that are not needed anymore. So you have to make those kind of changes eventually.
2: And that was the exact comment I was about to make, Dr. Gertz, is change happens, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen without pain, uh, both at like a business level and a personal level. A lot of folks may end up kind of retooling, so to speak, and getting uh, reeducated or go into a craft or a field that they weren't in because this pandemic kind of forced that option upon them. And they'll find work in other places and other industries. And same thing any time you talk about uh, growth, like you were saying, going from, you know, horse and buggy to cars, you know, entire new industries are born, and they they yet grow other surrounding industries around them to support them. So it's not that this is all doom and gloom. It's just kind of an innovation step where we might see that change.
0: Yeah, and sometimes the, uh, we make the story too good to be true. You can say, well, uh, someone's working in a, in a carriage factory, and the carriage factory closes on Friday, and they open up on Monday as a, they're making the chassis for Automobiles <laughs> and everything's fine, but I'm sure that that probably happens someplace, some sometime, but that's not the normal right. kind of thing. There's a lot of disruption, a lot of pain in the transition. All
1: right. Well, I will just try to remain optimistic on all fronts. You know, like I the the
0: the optimistic part is well, first of all, the United States seems to be doing a lot better than almost any other country in terms of unemployment, and the second. Thing. Again, going back to to where we were, if someone uh, told me back in uh, middle March or end of March that the stock market would be back more or less to where it was and that unemployment would be going down pretty dramatically and the economy was still really, uh, really uh, burdened but was still operating in at least a relatively efficient way, I would have been uh, very happy about that prediction. So that's more or less where we are right now.
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to transition here a little bit to why retirement is scary. So, you know, again, with the spirit of Halloween coming, we thought we would be corny and say why retirement is, retirement is scary. But it's really essentially it's a transition from a world of certainty, a steady paycheck to a world of uncertainty, a world without a paycheck, a world without continuous savings in your retirement plan to one where now we may think about spending down some of our money. And uh, there's a number of studies that have come out and surveys that have come out. But basically all of them, when it comes down to retirement fears, they all trace back to the ultimate fear is, well, one of these areas that we're concerned about, these you know areas of uncertainty cause me to run out of money. It's kind of the underlying fear behind a lot of the indiv- individual issues that scare people in retirement. And so we just picked out a few from Transamerica's 2020 retirement survey, and we'll get them to a little deeper in another section. But... Uh, hitting some of the big ones are long-term care costs. According to their 2020 retirement survey, 54% of retirees are not too confident. That's 29% of them or not at all confident, 25% in their ability to afford long-term care. This is one of the issues, Ryan. Um, 10 years ago, it hardly clients hardly ever brought it up on the front end of a, of a relationship. Now it's pretty standard issue that that's, that that's, mainly because of the rising costs over the last 10, 15, 20 years, I think. And then as we get older, we we all have, we know Uncle Joe or somebody who's spent considerable money in it. But it is one of those issues that really worry people. For the most part, we're on the front end of any financial plan. We're addressing that um, in a variety of ways. One, do you need long-term care insurance? Can you get long-term care insurance? Um, If you don't, you have enough assets. You know, how do, how do you, uh, blocking and tackling, how do you deal with that issue to try to bring some peace of mind or just less worry to the client that in that plan that, hey, we kind of have that as a goal that we've funded or we're attempting to fund?
2: Yeah, for any planning where we're doing this, and this for the vast majority of our clients, we're going to include this as a, a funding goal within the plan. We're just saying, listen, we don't know if you or if the person's married, your spouse, or both of you will have a need for long-term care. Uh, so there's a great amount of unknown uh, in knowing if we need to fund it. So the best we can do is say, well, let's assume, worst-case scenario, of course, that both of you need it. And that then presents a challenge in itself saying that, well, it's a, a very expensive event to fund long-term care. So how do we do this in a – in a rational way that doesn't just absolutely put kind of like a weight around the couple's neck or the individual's neck saying that at the end of this plan I need to have inflation adjusted dollars and even dollars that are going to exceed inflation because healthcare as we all know generally is is pacing or outpacing rather inflation so this is expensive from a, a spending standpoint you have to save a lot of assets or earmark them in in this financial plan to say well let's account for the fact that we may in fact need a long-term care stay, we will underspend, and you ask about the blocking and tacking, we'll underspend, essentially, what maybe our assets say we could spend with the intent and purpose being that we're going to be saving this, kind of that rainy day money for the long-term care need at the end of life.
1: In, in essence, it's kind of, we're creating, if they don't have long-term care insurance, it's a, it's a pseudo-insurance policy of saying, look, we're gonna earmark money towards that goal um, I've been working on a program using historical returns and just using real returns, returns net of inflation. And so I was, I'm kind of coming up with a different concept of like funding liabilities down the road. How much money do I have today with certain confidence? And I thought, you know, for most people on the front end of retirement, they're probably looking at 25 or 30 years before any significant, for most people. I mean, some people have much earlier, but, um, just, you know, when you just look at the numbers, you know, this is 25, 30 years down the road for a 60-year-old couple, for example, that one of them might. And just using, you know, a, a basic stock portfolio, and the reason I would say that, whether it's the S&P 500 index, for a 25- or 30-year need, that's the cheapest way to have a certain number of dollars 30 years from now. And I'm doing this from memory, but it's, it strikes me, and I'm I'm going to be really close, that I have a 30 year period that I'm worried about and there's nothing magical about the 30 year period. I mean, it the same concept applies and I want to be a hundred percent confident. In other words, at least, at least using historical data, how much money would I have to put, uh, you know, aside today in a standard Porsche 500 index mutual fund to have, uh, you know, a dollar 30 years from now, it's, it's about 20 cents on the dollar. So if I thought I might have a, Four hundred thousand dollar long term care need. I would need about twenty. You know, I'd need about eighty thousand uh, dollars set aside for that. If you wanted, if you're willing to be ninety percent sure, that is, you know, ninety percent of the time, I'm at least going to have that money. You know, then you'd only have to fund it with about fifteen cents on the dollar. And if you're willing to be somewhere around eighty five percent confident, that and that is eighty five percent of the time, if I looked at all the thirty year periods historically. I would have that amount of money or more then it's closer to ten or eleven percent so it's not insurmountable. it's something that can be dealt with but one way or another you have to deal with it otherwise my you know my experience has been you can have the best retirement plan in the world, but if it's not addressing that issue, there's always this thing that worries people and the but what if but what if so in essence you're just saying the what if you're taking care of on the front end. And then that one just kind of gets put aside. and Sometimes you have to circle back and say, oh, yeah, we have that taken care of when they bring it up
2: again. Right. I think for most people in a, a 60-year-old's world, they're not thinking about their 90-year-old self yet. They're thinking about, I'm almost done with, with work. I'm about to retire. I'm thinking about the joys and the excitement of this new function of life. Uh, they're not yet, and understandably so, thinking about the end of life and, and the the needing to care for that particular need of potentially a long-term care stay. So I think it's something that's important to be addressed on the front end to say, listen, let's not kid ourselves. We don't know if this will be a need, but if it is, it is a surmant- surmountable goal you need to be able to look at. Um, and bringing that to a bit of importance on the front end is relevant because, as you say, if you start on the front end of it, at the front of a 30-year term, right. you have the chance to really get there at the end uh, because you've you've accounted for that potential need in money.
1: And from a spending standpoint, you mentioned that what it, sometimes what it comes down to is you just don't get to spend as much in retirement as you had hoped. In re, tell me if I'm just reasonably close. Suppose you create a financial plan for somebody. Between their Social Security and their income streams and their assets, maybe without that goal, they could spend 60000 a year. And then we put that, you know, a reasonable or and a sensible uh, goal of, hey, we need to also be able to fund should it should we need to a pretty sizable long-term care need, then it might be 55000 a year, something in that. So it's it's going to be many times kind of in line with what the premiums would be if you could get long-term care. Is that is it kind of in that magnitude?
2: Yeah, it is. And obviously, it'll be different for individual couples. But of course, the, the important point is it's not maybe as big as some people might think. And what I've definitely noticed uh, is when I've gotten some prices for looking at pricing out what would long-term care insurance cost a particular couple at their current age and their health uh, needing insurance for a period in the future. They're getting closer and closer in terms of the insurance that I'm seeing quoted versus roughly the reduction in spend that we do in our plan if we don't have someone opt in to purchase insurance. So that to me says the you know the market is moving to a place where it's starting to kind of equal itself out a little bit, which is what ideally you'd expect to see. Okay. So.
1: Another one, uh, which I find interesting, uh, maybe not as much as the other side of this, caring for an elderly parent or other relative. A recent study by the Center for Retirement Research, Boston College, finds that between 10 and 12% of retired inv- individuals are caring for an elderly relative, an average of 70 to 95 hours per month, and spend an average of 35% of their budget on this care. You could see why that...
2: That's scary. And usually
1: that's the trigger yeah. for people in their sixties or whatever, they say, wait a minute, do we have long term care? Because they're looking at it in real life, seeing some of their money going out for their parents and they don't want their kids to have to do that and that's that can be a trigger. But that that but it's the other one that I deal with probably most of my time. This next one is supporting adult children. A bank rate study found that fifty percent of Americans say they have sacrificed or are sacrificing their own retirement savings in order to help their adult children financially. Again that squares with my world um, probably in the last five to 10 years, particularly five, uh, and some of it even more heavily now because of COVID. So many of our adult children have a job that they lost or some impaired earnings. Um, I spend at least half of my time from a financial planning standpoint. I deal with that um, probably as much, much more than any other issue, acute issue that pops up. Um, you know, you're seeing that too, aren't you?
2: Yeah, I've, I think that's one item that surprised me is not really expecting to see 70 and 80 year old retired clients being as financially active involved in maybe their, their children or grandchildren's lives. I think one avenue that or maybe one view of it is simply that we have clients that might be on average a little more affluent than yes, uh, maybe just experience. your general area. Um, And so because of that, they have the financial resources, which allows them to maybe smooth out these wrinkles, as we say sometimes. And uh, for folks that have, you know, been clients of ours, we, you know, we always tell them, you know, what better way if you have the financial wherewithal to be able to help out, to be able to do so, not expecting that it will be returned to you. uh, But you can know that, you know, maybe I'm in a, a very important, potentially like, life-changing event in your children or your family's lives, you're able to step in and potentially ward off something. Uh, What better use of your money than maybe giving that money when you've passed away, uh, when there wasn't quite the the dire need for it? So it's all a mindset, I think, too. Um, You know, What do you value and and how could you have maybe the biggest impact?
1: And so really any good retirement plan, it has to be built to expect the unexpected because we don't know what name's going to be on the curveball in retirement. But this is certainly a common one, and Fred, uh, the number one fear. Of course, these all, as I said, relate back to running out of money. Ultimately, they all circle back to that. Is that Social Security will be reduced, reduced, or cease to exist in the future? It's the number one fear of retirees in the Trans America Survey. Forty-one percent of the Trans America Survey reportedly worry about it more. That is, worry about running out of or Social Security being reduced or cease to exist than out living their savings or long-term care. So this is the number 1. I get asked this a lot, Fred. Uh because for we'll talk later in the show, I think 69% of the people in the survey said that that's pretty much their t- total income. Uh you could see why this would be a significant concern for people. Um is it equal opportunity concern should uh, should a 60 newly minted 65 year old or 66 year old that's at their full retirement age starting to take social security or in these days 67 year old or is this something more realistic to be worried about by the 25 year old that's entering the workforce in your opinion
0: right well i think the second but again it's kind of strange to use the uh third rail analogy twice in one uh one show but uh the, the third rail at the at the uh Federal level, which is the you know the uh, subway. If you touch the third rail, rail you're electrocuted. Is uh, obviously Social Security, and uh, you can tell that by uh, if the politician is desperate, what they uh, typically resort to is to say their opponent is going to cut Social Security. Well, the fact is, uh, Social Security is not going to go bankrupt under the current law. What would happen is if if the uh, amount of money fails to cover the once the uh, once the so-called uh, trust fund is. Exhausted. If the uh, money coming in says only pays say only pays eighty five percent of the uh, of the uh, cost, then uh, Social Security would be reduced by that amount. Now, that's uh, even even if we kept the law in place, that wouldn't happen for some time in the future. But there is almost a certainty that uh, somehow, some way, the government would would come up with a means to avoid that. So, I think politically, it's, it's very unlikely that there's ever gonna be a cut, in, a cut in Social Security. <clears throat> what might happen, and even this is uh, pretty far removed from actually being uh, on the agenda, would be to have some kind of long-term reduction in the rate of growth of Social Security over a period of, of uh, a decade or two. An example of that, going back uh, 20 or 30 years, was raising the retirement age from 65 to 67. So no one was affected by that right away but over a period of time it, uh, the retirement age has moved up gradually from 65 to uh, 67 and almost no one noticed the difference so that would be the kind of change that would probably occur if it were to happen but that would not affect new retirees and older uh, younger retirees would have a, uh, probably a, a number of decades to adjust to that so again someone retiring now i think has very little to fear someone who's somewhat younger probably doesn't have to fear having social security taken away, but they would have to think about it not being as important as it uh, otherwise would be. And the, the other way of, of, the other concern would be mostly about high-income people. There's al- always a possibility that um, uh, there will be some kind of means testing with social security where above a certain level people will have to have their, their, um,
2: their um, payments reduced.
0: But again, that's not very likely either at the, at, in this kind of political environment
2: and i was just going to say for dr fred when we we talk about the age moving up from 65 to 67 uh, that only makes sense anyways as as decades go on and our life expectancy uh gets longer it only seems to make more sense that, that not only is a suitable strategy for pr- potentially prolonging the amount of social security um benefits but you know if we're living longer we're we're withdrawing more um it only makes sense that you know maybe we try to keep it Somewhat level, so that folks that were, you know, 65, like reaching 65, was an older age at, at the time. Maybe 40, 50 years ago, um, and you weren't expected to live maybe more 10, 15 years or so. Now we see retirees living for you know two, three decades. Of course, depending on your your quality of your health and the education you had, those are the two bigger factors determining that. But it it only makes sense that the the age would move move up incrementally and. Um, to be caught by surprise, but that would be kind of maybe saying, well, it's not really a, a good review of history and what's been yep. done.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a good point. Uh, again, let's say that uh, I think this is more or less true back in the uh, beginning of Social Security back in uh, 1940 or so. Uh, the average uh, uh, time that people die was about 65, which is the same age as retirement. So a lot of people uh, never got social security and the ones that uh, lived beyond that uh, did get it but probably not for a very long period of time so let's say over that period of 40 or 50 years we've had an increase in uh, longevity of 20 years so people are living on average 20 years more than they were back in the early days of social security and the question is should all those 20 years uh, be attributed to retirement or should they be maybe prorated some way between a little bit more work and quite a bit more retirement and what we chose to do was to again raise the retirement age rate modestly, but only, only a small amount compared to increased longevity. The other argument, again, this is a policy question, but uh, the, the, the way people work is quite different uh, now compared to, you know, several decades ago as well. Uh, relatively few people work in uh, manual uh, labor where they have to uh, have a certain degree of physical strength and stamina and so on to do the job. And the fact that most people don't have to do that anymore it means they probably can maintain their ability to work uh, quite a bit longer now, again even all kinds of faculties uh, eventually decline, but uh, again i don't think that uh, many people 67 years old are not able to carry out the uh, demands of work so again the, the, going back to paul's original question i think the answer is uh if you're retired or near retirement it's not much to worry about if you're uh, a ways away from retirement you should uh, keep an eye on it, but it's probably not a matter of simply having it taken away at some
1: point. And of course, one of the big things they could do, yeah, uh, I don't know how politically popular, but just raise the cap on earnings. You know, how much I think right, right now your maximum earnings are somewhere around 137000 and after that, your earnings don't get taxed, at least for Social Security. They still do for Medicare purposes and that's the one right. that actually increases revenues a lot. So the combination yeah, of those factors can really uh, extend this problem for decades.
0: Yeah, and then in that case, the uh, younger people wouldn't lose anything in retirement. They, they'd lose uh, uh, quite a bit of taxes during their, their working life, especially if they're above the, the cap now. But again, that would be a way of addressing this. There's no payments way, but that's obviously a, a possibility.
1: In the final one of this little batch was housing costs. One of the top five fears in this Trans America survey. Uh, no surprise because according to the survey, the vast majority, 90% of retirees said remaining in their home as they get older is important to them. This is one of the things I think retirees really need to get in front of on, you know, on the front end of retirement is, you know, where, where, as we get older, where is it we really want to be or need to be or don't want to be? And you need to start figuring that out early in retirement. For instance, if you want to go into something like Clark Lindsay, they're essentially taking you on for life and even you know, it's really it's a form of insurance, long-term care and everything wrapped in. So it could be expensive to go to a place. It's not overly expensive. I think it's a fair deal. I'm not suggesting it's overpriced. I'm just saying because they're in a sense acting, at least in my opinion, until I'm told differently, sort of like an insurance policy uh, taking on that long-term care risk. You can
0: link that to the uh, first thing about long-term care that Another source of uh, long-term care uh, funding would be uh, uh, either selling your home or a home equity loan, right. especially if people are no, no longer able to live in the home. So that's a, a kind of a fallback to, in case the uh, they're not insured, in case you don't have quite enough to to pay for the uh, costs.
2: Yep, and, and that's a great point. That's actually precisely what we do in our our financial plans for clients. Is we say we expect, we don't know, but we expect based on predictions and, and market. Uh, return calculations that you're going to have sufficient assets to provide for a long-term care stay. But in the event that you don't, uh, and you're, of course, in a long-term care facility, that home that you own uh, is another form of assets that, just like a, a uh, stock or bond, could be sold, converted to cash, and used to fund a long-term care stay. And for the vast majority of people, um, that's more than sufficient uh, to cover a need. Um, but, again, it's just there as another form of, of money that you could tap into if you need it.
1: Yeah, especially uh, as uh, reverse mortgages become more and more efficient. I know people are skeptical of them, and there's kind of this, for, I think, for for the wrong recent reasons, maybe for past reasons, they were mm-hmm. pretty expensive, and there was a lot of red tape to get involved. But that's really become much more efficient, lower cost. I think that's going to be probably the go-to strategy for people that own their homes and have equity in their homes to fund long-term care needs or other needs. Uh, and and people just are very uncomfortable when you bring it up. I've noticed when I bring that up is, hey, that's another safety valve we have is we could get a, um, a reverse mortgage. And reverse mortgages can even come into place where you have a line of credit. Uh, maybe you never use it against your home equity. But if you get into a significant economic or stock market or investment t- t- uh, downturn, you could – Turn the your spending from your portfolio off and begin to use your home equity line of credit right. until things get better and again, I think this is an idea that has to mature a bit and people to get more comfortable with but for a lot of people, there's a safety valve there
2: yep. and a lot a lot of that all that un, that distrust of it all came from the fact that like people you know supposedly were being thrown out of their homes after there was no value left in their 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 credit uh which is I don't know if that was actually true or not, but that was the story that was being told. Maybe it was a slander campaign. Maybe yeah, it wasn't. It's, yeah, it's not true, but I think but that, not is, true that is the fear. But exactly. So people hear that, and it immediately is almost a connection to, I'm going to be out. I'm, on on – Skid row. Right and, and it's, not, it's, it's not allowable. I've
1: almost been to Skid Row. I don't want to go there, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been more than yeah. 25 years, guys, since Bill Bengen, a financial advisor in Southern California, created the so-called 4% rule. Now, most everybody's familiar with the 4% rule. About every prospective client, you know, asked me about it. Probably 90% of them can't tell me what the 4% rule really is. Uh, but it was the idea that uh, looking at historical data in a 30-year period, how much could I spend at a basic kind of conservative portfolio, 60% stocks-ish, 40% intermediate treasuries? How much could I withdraw on the begin withdrawing on the front end and just have an inflation-adjusted spending from then? And basically, he started out at 4%. Bill Began changed it, and when he changed the portfolio mix, added small companies to 4.5%. But now he's saying it's 5%. And this has really set off a debate in the financial industry because... I've talked about this on the show. There's a lot of pundits that think this, you know, the 4% rule should be the 2% rule mm-hmm. because fixed income, you know, the bond portion and CD rates are so low that in a 60/40 portfolio, intuitively that kind of makes sense, but he brought up a point that I've caught after doing all the simulation work that I've done for years is one of the biggest problems in retirement is really not bear markets. Bear markets get better. So when stock markets decline, eventually, though no one knows when and you can't be have be a hundred percent sure, but they get better. They 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 it's they're self healing. But when you go through periods of high inflation on the front end of retirement, that never gets that never gets back to where it was. It's kind of locked in for the next twenty five years, and that's one of the biggest issues. So, and I've said this on the radio show with these people that are saying, uh, you know, with uh, bond rates being so low that the stock market won't do well, et cetera. I said, well, what they're forgetting is if bond rates are going to remain stubbornly low chances are inflation remains stubbornly low and that was bangen's argument and the reason he changed the rules he he went back and looked at for most of our history we had pretty high we've had some periods of high inflation and those were the troublesome that that's why it was 4% and not 6 or 7%. So anyway with the updated thinking and considering the impact of lower inflation that's where he got to a, a, the 5% rule. What I warn people about is, it's just a guideline, it's not a guide itself. But it's probably, it's what it, it stacks up with everything from my research that I've done, thousands of hours of of trying different modeling of and creating different processes. But, you know, you could start out at 6% if you want, you just need to have, and there wouldn't be anything irrational about that, but it would be irrational to start out at 5 or 6% and just increase it by inflation every year uh, because that can run into a problem. So it, it really, I think it's a useful guideline on how much I might expect from my investment portfolio, but you're going to need a process to make adjustments along the way. The 4% rule is really akin to going on a trip in a car with no brakes and no side mirrors because you're never going to change your speed and you're never going to change direction. Um, pretty uncomfortable way to go on a trip. And that's kind of what the four and now the five percent rule is. The other thing that I have never seen anybody talk about when it comes to four and five percent rule, though I've, I've considered it in my simulations is even to the extent inflation matters and it really does in retirement, retirees tend to spend below the level of inflation as research shows out by Blanchett of Morningstar. I think it's about one percent below. So if inflation is three percent, most retirees in the in the aggregate might sp- increase their spending by two. Um, I think that's another reason that why a 5% withdrawal rate might be reasonable, as long as you have the guardrails in place to know where to make adjustments in spending ahead of time. Um,
2: and I, I think it's safe to say that most, most people left to their own devices probably wouldn't know where to intervene. For sure. Um, and it's by no fault of their own. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, you, you kind of have to have a bit of an understanding knowing in advance what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. If you get certain market conditions up or down, right? Cause as you say, you, you're, you're, it's almost like a set it and forget it strategy. That's how it's presented. It's not meant to well, be that. that. Well,
1: it, the 4% rule by itself is a set it and forget it. And that's why you really can't implement it. That's why humans right. are never capable of implementing it because the first time they go into a smasher bear market, they're just going to panic and bail out on the four percent rule and do something stupid uh, so it's a th- is it technically a fact that historically if you save if you spent four or four and a half percent from your portfolio and, and and set it and forget it, you wouldn't have run out. but what that ignores Ryan and Fred is okay, there's certain value to historical data, and we got some really doozy problem areas, but when you consider the lowest return uh, over the last 100 years for a 30-year retirement, compounded return for the broad U.S. market is about 7.5% per year. It doesn't sound too bad, but that would have been on the front end of September of 1929, would be that period, and you went down 85% in the stock markets. So but the whole point is that any good simulation has to also take into consideration that historical data might not be complete enough. Mm-hmm. We may have... 20- and 30- 30 and 35-year periods that are worse returns than we've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why a set-it-and-forget-it 4% or 45 or 5% rule is not sensibly implementable mm-hmm. in my view.
2: I think it's just nice as like a pulse to say, you know, if I look at how much I'm taking out, you know, am I close to that? Am I yeah. far off from yeah. that up or down? And that's why I think it's a value. And I know we use it as just a quick back of the envelope calculation a lot of times. And it's useful for and that. It's, it's precisely useful for that, but not necessarily for how many dollars should I be withdrawing every month necessarily for an actual retiree.
1: It's not a useful set it and forget it number. Right. It's a useful, if somebody comes in today and says, Hey, I want to retire. Okay, I just want to know a couple of things. What are your income streams? Suppose they say Social Security, 3000 a month between me and my spouse. Okay, great. So we know we got 36000 a year there. And what do you have uh, in investments? Well, they're lucky they have a million dollars. I say, well, okay, well, Social Security, 3000 a month. Uh, and there's eh, probably, you know, you probably have a 7000 a month spend or, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere in that zone. When we actually go do the more complete analysis, it's usually not too far from that. So but that but <laughs> but of course a lot of this assumes it is most simulation assumes it is set it and forget it. And we know just from all the work and research we've done that set it and forget it is not an implementable idea. You have to know where if my returns are poor for a period of time and we have below average returns should we adjust spending, and where should we do that? And we need to know these things ahead of time, so the clients are never surprised. The truth is, any of these rules are assuming that you're going to get a global depression, essentially, or a very high inflationary period. That, hence, that's 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 why we have such a low. F- when you think about a thirty-year retirement, if you just did nothing and put it in cash, I mean, you could take out you know three point three 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 percent per year. And with no earnings, so when you think of a four or four and a half four and a half percent return, it's not because average returns aren't high during most thirty year periods. it's because we have to take into account what if we get a bad draw on the front end mm-hmm. it's it's just It's just like fire insurance it's I know the chances of my house burning down are really, really low, but I might be in trouble if I didn't have fire insurance for my home, and so it's just a premium you pay. Uh, so it's not a set it and forget it but i did find that it was interesting and i think there's going to be all kinds of controversy but a four and a half or five percent expectation from spending on the front end of retirement from your assets i think is a reasonable guideline but just make sure you're talking with your advisor and you have flexibility in spending the key to retirement always comes down to I need to be flexible in the amount of money that I pull out of my portfolio because there's going to be times where I may have to modestly cut it for a period of time until things heal themselves again. Well, that's yeah, about... Good news, though, go ahead, Fred. I got about 30 seconds. Got,
0: okay. If you reach you know, 75 or 80 and things are going well, you can actually increase the amount too. So there's an upside as well as a downside. So sorry.
1: To... No, no, that's, that's absolutely true. That's why if it's set it and forget it, you know, you might end up you know, saying, hey, you could spend 200000 a year and you really have a 100000 a year need, or but use those numbers any way you want. Yeah. You can use fractions of them if you want. Well, you've been listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. And Dr. Fred Gertz is a guest, as usual, and Ryan Repko, certified financial planner with Rudy Wealth Management. We'll be back.